session with Dr. Farid Holakou. Good afternoon and welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Dulaku, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes. Again, our studio number, 310-441-0555. The book of the week for this week that I announced Monday is Gender and Our Brains by Gina Rapone. Gender and Our Brains, How New Neuroscience Explodes the Myths of the Male and Female Minds. Uh, And I'm just about 30 pages in and enjoying it so far. I had this for a couple months, actually. It's kind of on the longer side, so I wanted to make sure it was a week where I'd be able to devote the time to get it done uh, for Monday's show. Um, but it has a similar theme to books I've done recently, like Superior and Inferior, both by Angela Saini, and actually an Inferior that talked about how so much science um, or research had, quote-unquote, proven that women were inferior and men were superior. Uh, in that book, actually, I remember that Gina Rapone was interviewed and her research was talked about or her opinions were talked about. And so here in this book, um, it follows that similar theme, at least so far in the beginning of how there's been a lot of uh, science and scientists trying to prove this point that they think that men are superior and women are inferior. And they found lots of ways to try to do that. But one of them um, was the brain and different ways of looking at the brain or the size of the skull or the weight of the brain. Um, and then, uh, or hormones or different things that affect the brain. Uh, but always we know that the starting point was that women were less than men. Let's see how the science quote unquote proves that, um, which is an interesting thing to keep in mind because we tend to think of science as something that's unbiased and it uh, doesn't have any uh, issues related to objectivity, uh, but that's the scientific principles themselves. But we humans are doing the science. And so because of our own biases, our own um, preconceived notions about things, that's going to affect the way we look at things. The example I've used before um, is if I give you a a standard deck of cards, which has 52 cards in it, and I say, hey, count this to make sure it's right before we play. If you count and you get to 52, you're like, yeah, it's 52, so let's play. But if you get 51 or 53, you're probably going to recount to make sure Uh, you got it right. So because it goes against what you're expecting, you're going to doubt your measurements or you doubt your counting in this case. And so in the quote-unquote science that people have done throughout the history and even now, there's these biases that come into play where if they find something they're expecting, um, they'll say, see, this proves that this is true. If it's not, they usually will say there's something wrong with the data or something is off or this is an outlier Uh, and even the questions we ask the types of questions we ask and especially the interpretations we make 
very much get affected by our biases, what we already think and believe. So a lot of what we think of the male brain and female brain, what makes men and women different is oftentimes exaggerated to say the least. So looking forward to finishing the book and sharing it with you on Monday night. Um, but wanted to talk today to start off the show about perfectionism, a very common, or I should say common to have to some degree, but a very harmful characteristic or personality trait that people can have that sometimes is overlooked for how negative and harmful it could be. And part of the reason for that is that we often think of different psychological traits in a more playful way. So say, oh yeah, I'm a perfectionist and people will show off about it or talk about it in a way, just like people will say, oh, I'm so OCD, as if it's just like a thing because you like things to be clean or organized that you you have a very serious mental disorder. It might just mean you like things organized. You might even have more OCPD, obsessive compulsive personality disorder. Uh, but even still just having some of these traits doesn't give you that um, disorder. Or people will say, oh, I'm so depressed. And some Isaiahs mean they're, they're sad or they're having a bad day. So we know that people at times will use psychological uh, or mental illnesses or different um, aspects of mental illness or health in some playful ways or signs not really knowing and it gets part of the common vocabulary but doesn't mean we're really getting at the heart of what the actual issues are. So perfectionism is one of those things where people will throw out there uh, and many of you, us will have it to different degrees but when we have really strong perfectionism it is a really debilitating and potentially dangerous trait. The reason why I say dangerous is there's been recent research and recent interest in looking at the connection between perfectionism and suicide. Uh, when we think about suicide, of course, we can think of depression, also drug addiction. Lots of things can be factors for depression, and especially one mental trait or at least state that people will think of is hopelessness. That if someone feels hopeless, which means they feel like what they're going through is very painful and it won't get better, it's only going to stay the same or get worse, uh, then you decide that maybe it's better just to end it. It's not going to get any better and I can't take this anymore. So that hopelessness is uh, something that even therapists are very aware of in asking clients about if they're concerned about suicidality. See, is there any hope? Has this client, this person given up hope completely because that tends to put them at a higher risk to act on that by hurting themselves, taking their own lives. And so uh, we will be very sensitive to that. But perfectionism is one that we don't often think of in that same way because perfectionists tend to be high performers. They tend to uh, try to do very well. They can often be very high functioning. And this is where it gets itself, um, it can be very dangerous that because they're perfectionists, they tend not to show weakness or show that they're going through things. So you might see them as high strung. Sometimes we'll call them type A. Sometimes we'll say um, they're, uh, you know, have high standards or really push themselves. Uh, but they might look pretty successful to the outside or look okay. And of course, they also want to show that they're okay because part of being a perfectionist is you shouldn't have weaknesses. You shouldn't have flaws. So I can't show that I'm struggling or show that I'm having a hard time or that I'm challenged by what I'm going through. I have to put this veneer and this mask that everything is okay. And so we want to be very mindful of this in ourselves and also 
your friends and family and especially kids because perfectionism is something that you start to see from a young age. And most parents won't say that they tell their kids you have to be perfect. That's very rare. It might happen in some cases. But at times parents will make a child feel like mistakes are not tolerated or we don't like mistakes or we don't want to see you fail or if you fail we might treat you very differently um, or you make us less proud and we might put a lot of pressure on our kids without realizing it so rarely is the, is it explicitly said you have to be perfect or you're nothing but we might give our child the feeling that their love is contingent on performance if you get an a we love you if you get a b even or don't get a good grade then we're going to be disappointed and wonder why didn't you get an A when you know you can get an A. So we have to give our children, and of course this then comes back to ourselves, the space to be imperfect, to be human, which means you will make mistakes. Everyone does. You have to. You can't live life without making mistakes. And unfortunately, the fear of mistakes gets in the way of progress, gets in the way of doing things. If you're afraid of, let's say, when you're a basketball player of missing a shot, because it feels so bad to miss a shot, then you'll never take a shot, so you can never make a shot. You can never have a success. And so in most people's life, if they're afraid to make a mistake, they won't try something new. They won't try something you're not good at. And sometimes you'll see a kind of like self-help books or quotes on the internet which will say, do something you suck at, which I think kind of sounds funny, but is true, is that actually it could be good for you to do something you're not good at and let yourself not be good at it. Of course, you can work on it and might you'll probably get better, but it can be good for some people, if, especially if you have some perfectionistic tendencies, to do something you're not good at, to see that that's okay, um, and to actually challenge yourself to, to do something that's not quite right. Or even if you're going to take an art class, take an art class that's more abstract, not something that's going to be so technical, but that there isn't really just a right answer where you get it right or you're going to be good at it. Let yourself kind of be bad at it. And so parents can put this pressure on their kids that, oh, my child is so good at everything or uh, he or she is so talented, they're a genius. And here when you use words like genius and tell them they're so talented, so smart, it also ties into the concept of growth mindset versus fixed mindset. If you keep telling your child that they're so smart, you're a genius, you're brilliant, you're um, you know, virtuoso, of course, those sound like pleasant things. But you also are putting a pressure on your child that they have to always be perfect. They have to always get it right. They have to not make mistakes. They have to um, show that they're always good, which means that if they ever don't do well, well, I guess you're not a genius anymore. You were a genius because you got an A on your math test. If you get a B, I guess you're not that smart. That's the message we're sending to our kids. And this is why it's so much more important to praise the effort rather than praising them for some kind of intrinsic talent that they have. Oh, you got an A on your math test? You must have worked really hard. You must have studied really hard. And it might seem like a fine distinction, or maybe it's not that big of a deal, but we know that that pressure over time builds for the child and builds within us to then be afraid to do something we're not good at, to make that mistake. So we might think that if I'm complimenting my child, how could that hurt them? If I tell my child, She's a genius every day. How can that be bad? And of course, you might say it sometimes. Of course, we're never going to only praise effort and not praise anything else. Actually, that wouldn't be good either because if you really see your child, you might notice things. Oh, you are really, like, you're so artistic. You're good at drawing. You can give them compliments for skills as well, but we really want to make sure 
the majority of our compliments are coming based on their effort. You've tried so hard, which really is the truth also. If you're going to do well at something, it happens because you work very hard. So we want to give them that type of praise more than the praise for just being good because that puts a lot more pressure on them that you can't make a mistake. So in this way, it's very much tied in to perfectionism. If I'm afraid to make a mistake to prove I'm not that thing, it makes it very scary to try something new. And so that's why when they've done some studies looking at mindset, I think it was with fifth graders, and they gave them uh, like a puzzle or a math problem. And when they finished and they got it right, with half of the kids, they told them, oh, you got it right, you're so smart. With the other half, they told them, oh, you got it right, you worked so hard. And the kids that were given the praise for their effort were more likely to want to try a more challenging puzzle next. Whereas the ones who were told they were so smart, they were actually afraid in a way to try that harder puzzle. They wanted to have something as easy or easier than what they had done. Because getting it wrong is too scary. The stakes become too high. Whereas when you praise the effort, they actually get excited about a challenge. They know that if they can't get it, it doesn't mean they won't be able to get it. That means they have to just work harder to get the puzzle right or to figure it out. And that that effort will be rewarded. But if it's just the talent, then it becomes very scary to try something new. So there's many indirect and direct ways that you may pass on to your children this sense of perfectionism that they'll internalize. And of course, as is the case with all things, you have to look at your own relationship to perfectionism and to making mistakes. Do you tolerate mistakes in yourself? Are you okay with that? Because if you're not, then you might project that onto your kids as well. If you can't tolerate a B for yourself, and then if your child brings home a B, you might be like, oh, that's not good. That's actually something really bad. And so I have to make sure my kid doesn't think this is okay. So we have to look at our own relationship with mistakes and getting things wrong and realizing it's okay to make mistakes. No matter who you are, even if you're not a perfectionist, we don't like making mistakes usually. It's not a good feeling to get something wrong or to not get it right. But we can recognize that it is okay, that actually it's a part of growth. And even if it doesn't feel good in the moment, it's how you grow. And actually, if you're studying something, and let's say you take a practice test, you're actually more likely to hold on to the information of things you got wrong than things you got right. And it could be because when you get something wrong, you have kind of a bad feeling or it makes you uh, feel this surprise or different types of emotions that might make that information stick better. You'll remember the thing you got wrong even more because you're like, okay, yeah, that's what I thought it was, but it's actually this. And it might make you think about it more, think about it more deeply. So you might actually do better because of those mistakes. So rather than thinking that the mistakes are some kind of enemy, the mistakes can actually help you out. So we're at a commercial break, but after the break, I'm going to talk some more about perfectionism and how it can affect us so negatively. Um, But like many things, it's not something we can just change overnight, but we can work on that. So after break, we'll talk some more about perfectionism. If you want to call in about this or any topic, go right ahead. 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So in the first segment, I was talking about uh, perfectionism, and I was kind of thinking before I came on in a joking way that I got to make this a perfect segment. Um, But actually, that does uh, illustrate the point that 
if you try to make something perfect or you think it has to be perfect, you won't do anything at all. So if I thought I had to make a segment perfect, I would probably be too afraid to even start because I know every time, every segment, every minute, I could probably be better, and that's okay. Uh, and I might actually talk a bit about that, how by not being a perfectionist, it doesn't mean you don't want to improve. Um, but if we put that pressure on ourselves, it becomes very scary to start anything. So uh, I was talking of some ways that parents can be aware of that they might be putting that pressure onto their kids. And the reason why it's important to think about this is that you might think you're just trying to encourage success or make your children work hard, which is good. Um, but when you do it with perfectionism, it's actually going to be holding them back. So actually the pushing you're doing won't be pushing them forward. It's going to be pushing them down. It's going to make them more nervous, more afraid. And so when I, I sometimes will work with teenagers or if I work with kids or work with adults even who will reflect on childhood, they'll share how much pressure their parents put on them where sometimes the parents have no idea that they were doing so just by putting so much pressure weight on the accomplishments and not praising them if they didn't accomplish something or by getting disappointed by certain things or showing them in different ways that what they did was not good or not good enough, uh, getting mad at them if they get a bad grade. Very often your child will get a bad grade and they'll be sad. And our first reaction when we see our child did something not good or anyone did something not good is we think we have to punish them or we have to make them uh, feel bad, which goes back to our ways of looking at punishment and looking at a behavioral change. We think, okay, bad behavior has to be punished in some negative way. But oftentimes, especially as your child gets a little bit older, but even from a young age, the consequences themselves will be enough of a punishment. So if your child cares a lot about their grades and they get a C on a test and you see that they're really unhappy, that's, that's their punishment. That's their consequences that they got the C and they're feeling down. Your job isn't to pile that on. And very often parents think I have to show them that what they did was wrong, but clearly they'll, they're showing you they already know it's wrong or bad. I don't feel good about this grade. So you can talk to them and work with them and see how you can support them if they want to work harder, what they need to do to do better. But don't think that your role is to add to that. Or if a kid, you know, is a little bit older and has an accident, they, let's say, wet their bed or are out and have an accident. Sometimes parents think they have to punish them to show them that was wrong. But usually your child is already so embarrassed and ashamed about what happened, what they actually need from you is more support. They don't think this is a good thing. I want to keep doing this. So you have to punish them to show them that it was wrong. No, they actually need for you to give them the support they need. They, uh, they're probably feeling really bad. Help them feel okay. Show them you love them no matter what. That's going to help them more than you need to somehow put them down or make them feel worse. So we have to remember that even though our reaction at times is, oh, bad behavior has to be punished, we have to realize that the world is already giving them their punishment with the consequences. We don't need to add to that. And so that can make them feel even worse about making a mistake or doing something wrong. They don't need us to add fuel to that fire that's already burning within them saying that I did something bad or I am bad. And this is where perfectionism leads us. It's not just I made a mistake. It's I'm bad, I'm nothing, I'm not good enough, I'm not lovable. And people will see that as soon as I make a mistake. So I, the pressure is on. And so we can see how much, how exhausting that would be. Imagine if you felt that everything you do, either you do it right, which is okay, that's fine, or you do it wrong and it's disaster. You're unlovable, people will think you're stupid, 
Uh, no one will want to be your friend. No one will love you. No one will like you. Whatever it is that comes up for you, but all these catastrophic things come up. And so there's never an enjoyment because if you get an, the question right, okay, you just avoided disaster and you did what you're supposed to do. But if you get it wrong, oof, then it's this whole cascade of scary feelings um, and uh, painful feelings and fear of being found out and fear of people seeing that you're not smart or not whatever it is you want them to think about you. And that's very, very hurtful. And so because of that, perfectionists become very good at hiding things, both from others, but also eventually from themselves. And so very often when we tell people to be more compassionate to themselves, be more loving towards themselves, what people will reply at times is, well, that's going to mean I'm going to be too easy on myself. I'll never do anything. I won't work hard. I won't challenge myself. That's actually being weak and making me soft and making me not grow. But this is actually not what we see. Because if you are loving with yourself, you're not loving in a way of coddling yourself because you actually want what's good for you. So if you're at your job and you're not doing well on something, it doesn't mean you say it doesn't matter. You don't have to do anything. You're, you know, deserve to just take a break, rest and never work again. No, you say, you know what, you're tired, you're having a hard time, but let's see how we can get through this because you know you want to get this done and it'll feel good for you and be good for you to get this done. Not the other side, which sometimes people think is the tough love, but really there's not love in it of, come on, you got to do this. You're being lazy. You're being stupid. What's wrong with you? You're the only one having a hard time with this. What's the problem? Just get it together and finish it now. And we think that that's good, tough love to push us forward. But if anything, that's just going to push you down. Maybe it'll fuel you sometimes, but guess what? Next time you have something to do, if you know that you're going to punish yourself, if you don't do it right, you might be afraid to even realize you have something to do. You are much more likely to engage in avoiding and avoidance behaviors because it's scary to face that. It's similar to um, the example we use when you have two different types of parents. If you make a mistake, if you break a vase and you have one parent who is going to respond by beating you or yelling at you or telling you what's wrong with you and all these mean things, or if you have another parent who you know will be disappointed or maybe won't be happy because you broke something, but will still respond in a loving way, will help you clean it up or deal with the issue and fix it, you're much more likely to tell the second parent than the first one. So the first one who has that punitive parent is much more likely to literally sweep it under the rug, try to hide they broke this vase, try to come up with some excuse, but they're much more likely to try to hide, lie, or pretend like it didn't happen because it's too scary to face the consequence of telling the parent about what happened. But the other one could say, you know what, I don't like it and maybe it doesn't feel good that I broke something or I did something wrong, but I know it's not going to be scary and actually it would be better to bring it up and deal with it. So we see that people who have more self-compassion actually are more likely to face their own mistakes because it's not as scary to face a mistake. But people who lack self-compassion are much more likely to hide things from others and themselves. If they make a mistake at work, they're like, oh gosh, what do I do? And they try to hide it from the manager, the supervisor. And then a lot of times what happens is these become bigger problems. Sometimes they try to cover it up or they try to make up for it. So they do riskier things or do something else that's wrong and it becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. And then now it's a huge problem where all it was was something small that could have been addressed if they were okay with um, saying they made a mistake or something went wrong or something was 
uh, not like it was supposed to be or as they planned. So we can see how it actually gets in the way of improvement. It doesn't actually push us forward when we're a perfectionist. If I'm afraid to make a mistake, I'm afraid to start. So perfectionism is the enemy of progress. Perfectionism is the enemy of growth, especially when it comes to things like growing in a thing you're not good at. You're too afraid to start something new because you know you're going to be bad at it at the beginning. Even a, what a perfectionist might do if they're studying is, let's say they have two chapters, one they know really well and one they don't know well at all. Now, all of us might feel a little more comfortable with that first one that we know well, but for a perfectionist, this pull will be even stronger. And you've maybe even experienced this yourself, but you might review that part that you know again and again because it feels comfortable to know the answers, to get it right, to feel comfortable with the material, when really you know that what you have to study is the stuff you know less well the other chapter. But because that's going to bring up not knowing, that discomfort of what if I won't get it, what if I can't get it, and that's a lot scarier, we prefer to stay in that comfort rather than have that growth and go forward. So we can see that it doesn't actually make us better. It doesn't bring out the best version of ourselves when we try to be perfect because there is no such thing as perfect. And because there's no such thing as perfect, we often won't do anything at all. We'll stay stuck. We'll stay frozen. Now, coming back to the concerns or the relationship that it can have with suicide. As I mentioned before, if you're a perfectionist, you think you shouldn't need help. You shouldn't have problems. I should have it all together. I shouldn't have any flaws. So unfortunately, if they are struggling, and they of course often will be if you're really dealing with serious perfectionism, they're going to be dealing with a lot of uh, anxiety and stress and constant worry, um, they tend to hold it in. And so if a perfectionist comes in for therapy, rarely it's to deal with their perfectionism. It's usually they want to perform better. So they think, okay, uh, you know, I'm at work. I'm not doing perfect. I'm not doing as well as I know I should. I know I could do better. I'm not meeting my potential. So they might come into therapy to help them deal with that. They know they have to do better. Or they have to be uh, more perfect or they can do more than what they're doing. So that's what they want help with. Not realizing that what's fueling that, what's driving them is actually really burning them out and hurting them. And that's the bigger issue. So unfortunately, they might not seek therapy for the perfectionism itself. Other things might bring them in. And when it comes to not just seeking professional help, but help from people around them, very often they won't show you that they're not okay. And so maybe they won't be able to tolerate expressing to you that they're not okay or they're making a mistake or they're not quite right but hopefully you can give them that space whoever you are to your friends family loved ones kids that it's okay to tell you that you don't expect perfection from them that you don't love them because of their performance or based on um, some achievement they have you love them for who they are and you love them for being human which means they make mistakes they of course will get things wrong and do things that aren't right and that's okay because we all do those things. So hopefully we can give them that space. And if you are someone who's dealing with this, realize that it is an unrealistic expectation. Nothing has ever been perfect. No one has been perfect, even we could say for a minute or a day. That's not what we're talking about. That's not something that's feasible. You strive to be the best you can be knowing that it'll be imperfect. And so if you have that standard, realize that no one expects that from you. Unfortunately, it seems like you might be expecting it from yourself, but you don't need to because it's not realistic. It's getting in the way. Um, good enough is good enough, and you need to strive for that. Um, and so 
one last point is related to what I was saying before of how people think that if you are not a perfectionist, you won't be that good um, or you won't really aspire for something. Uh, since I talked about um, the knowledge of shooting a shot in basketball, I'll use a similar one. It's like, to me, shooting free throws. And I used to like shooting free throws because I was pretty good at it. And so you can be very good to the point where you, let's say, make most of them or make 80 or 90% of them. And so each time you shoot one, you will expect to make it. That makes sense. You make them more than you miss them. But you also know that if you're going to shoot a lot of them, you're going to miss some. And you have to be able to accept that, that I'm going to make some mistakes. You're never going to make all of them. There's no way to do that. Even the best shooters in the world will make some mistakes. And so you have to have that space. So life is like that too. You keep trying your best. You might expect to do well, but if you don't, you know it's okay. You know that I can accept my mistakes. I can accept my shortcomings. And so sometimes we praise people for not accepting mistakes in themselves or others, or we'll talk about how good it is to be my harshest critic. And you hear it all the time, whether it's in actually in sports or in other arenas where people will ask them a question and say, oh, I'm actually, I'm my hardest critic. And it can be okay that you're aware of yourself and you want to grow, but not really in the way that you are so hard on yourself for everything you do. So we shouldn't be praising this that, oh, it's good to, to not tolerate making any mistakes and being so hard on yourself. We think that shows how good we are and how much we're aspiring for greatness. But actually this tends to backfire when you are so harsh and judgmental about your mistakes, you'll hold yourself back. You'll be afraid to take risks. You'll be afraid to take chances because those are more likely to be areas where you will make a mistake. You will get it wrong before you get it right. And so rather than praising perfectionism and praising this type of mindset of never making any mistakes, we should realize that they're really just something that's fiction. It's not a real thing. If you're actually so hard on yourself, you won't even let yourself start. You won't even let yourself try. You can aspire for greatness. You can want to do something great and push yourself, but in a positive way. Um, as I sometimes say, rather than running away from a nightmare, which is if I make a mistake, I'm horrible, chase a dream. Go toward your dream that I want to do good because it feels good and is the good thing to do. So we can actually choose between not wanting to fear being nothing because I make a mistake and feeling good about ourselves for doing something right. So perfectionism is a very serious mental, if you want to call it mental health issue or mental health trait that people can have that can be very dangerous. As I mentioned, it's becoming more apparent that it's linked to suicide in ways that we hadn't anticipated before. It wasn't thought of as much as things like hopelessness, but it very much is there because we can't accept that um, we're not doing perfect. If we need help, that makes us feel weak. We feel afraid to ask for help. We don't want almost rather die than ask for help, literally in some cases, unfortunately. And so it pushes people in a bad place when they try to be perfect, when they try to be something that we can't be. Of course, you're going to be disappointed when you do that. So it can be very sad to see someone struggling with perfectionism. It can be difficult to challenge that and change that, but it is possible oftentimes with therapy and often just working on yourself as well. Um, but I hope that if you're hearing this and you're dealing with it, you realize the standard that you're holding yourself to is unrealistic and it's hurting yourself and that people will love you uh, for not being perfect. They don't expect that from you either. Uh, let's go to a commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to a caller. 
Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hey, how's it going? Good, thanks. Thanks for calling. How are you today? Good, thanks. How can I help you? Go ahead. Okay, so I was actually calling regarding myself. I graduated from University of Riverside in December mm-hmm. of 2019, so just past year, in chemical engineering. And now is like the time I've been starting to look for to apply for jobs mm-hmm. in my field. And I also have been thinking about possibly going back to school to go for my master's and PhD program. Okay. But I'm kind of like stuck in the middle about do I want to start working, build that working experience as an engineer, and then kind of have like a company that's going to support me and go back to school? Or do I spend some like fresh and I have all that fire behind me still from school, you know, from working that hard to get the degree? And I graduated in the top of my class for my major. So, like, I'm kind of just, like, stuck in the middle, you know? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I also wanted to kind of just ask and see if you have any sort of advice, too, for, like, when I'm looking for jobs or, like, some of the things maybe that I should do to make me kind of stand out more in front of other people. Mm-hmm. You kind of get what I'm asking. kind of just... Yeah, well, I mean, the first, you know... The, there's not going to be, I think, an easy right answer to something like this. And also, mm-hmm. different fields are different and different people are different. I don't know what's going to be best I for you. I don't really think I'm... Uh, okay, I, I I wanted to say this. I'm not really looking for an answer. Yeah. I'm just more I'm just more looking to... My dad told me. I always <laughs> listen to your dad's radio. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then my dad told me that you speak in English and everything. I and do. I should call you. And, and I'm actually very happy that I did. So the reason yeah. I called you was... I actually just kind of want to talk to someone who's more understanding. Unfortunately for me, no one around me has really came to the level of education that I've got to. Mm. So everybody that I talk to kind of just, I don't know, they don't really understand what I'm trying to say, you know? Yeah. And I kind of I don't get what I want out of them, too, because I feel like it's kind of, they're just kind of saying things they don't know. or And it's not even their fault, it's just they yeah. obviously don't know. Well, that's an interesting thing, you know, sometimes when people come to us, even you calling me, it's, in a way it's funny, it's almost ironic, but when they ask for our advice, we feel like we need to give them an answer, when sometimes yeah. we don't know. Like, so if you tell me in chemical engineering, is it better to have your master's first or go work first and then go get a master's and then, you know, I don't really know, right? So I can't tell you, oh, you know, actually, no, it's better to go to school first because in chemical engineering, they care about blah, 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 because I don't actually mm-hmm. know. But a lot of times if we talk to family, uh, all people do this, but I think in Iranian families, you see this even more that they think they have to show you they know or show you they have advice that's going to help you. So they mm-hmm. tell you do this or do that or no, no, this is the good thing. Uh, very often based on just wanting to give advice or maybe their own anxieties. So let's say they're worried about money. Like, no, no, you should go make money now because you need to make money. Um, or they are they really like education. So they say, no, you should definitely go to school. You shouldn't work. So, you know, they often will give you advice when they don't know or they just feel like they have to give you something. So it could be tough when you don't know yourself and then you ask people and they give you different advice or sometimes they can tell you in a very confident way, this is what you should do. And then it can make you question 
what you what you should do. So I think it's important to ask people, not just family, but ask people in your field who know the field better than definitely me and know it better than you as well um, to get their input. But the most important thing for me is that you at the end make a decision that you think is the right one, that it's coming from you because you're the one that's going to have to live it and live with the consequences, the good and the bad. And so it's important for you to make sure it's coming from you and not anyone else. Yes. And now this goes to exactly what makes like makes this very difficult. Is, so I'm going to be very blunt with you. Mm-hmm. When I was younger, I, I ended up, I was a very, very, Let's just say I was a mixed-up kid. I did a lot of wrong things. I mm-hmm. Just being stupid, you know, being young. Yeah. And what that ended up causing was it got me a felony. So I'm mm-hmm. actually a convicted felon in the state of California. Mm-hmm. So what that does is now with a bachelor's degree in chemical engineering, even though I'm on top of my class, still when I go to apply for jobs, mm. a lot of companies will look at that as a downside. You know, they look yeah. at it like, oh, you made a mistake, this happened. And that's kind of just, that's kind of like for me when I've been applying too, it's like I know that's going to come and I never lie about it. You know? Always, mm-hmm. You're always going to get the 100% truth from me when it's on an application or on anybody who I talk to. But that's where the conversation came up that do I go now and just continue doing my school? Because right now if I go to the courts, I my attorney says if I go to court, I can go and show the judge that hey I went to school and maybe we can go ahead and bring it down to like a misdemeanor and a couple of years again bring it down to maybe a misdemeanor. But that's always like a maybe, you know. Mm-hmm. But my attorney says if I was to go continue school or just continue and put more time on, it, you know, so a little bit more time passes, the chances of when we go back to get that removed off my Past, at least for jobs and stuff, why sake, would be almost a 99% where to right now with only a bachelor's degree, it's about like 70%. Mm. So for me, if I go to school and get my master's and PhD, that always looks much, much better for me in sure. every aspect. Because if I go to any employer, and like your dad always says as well, he says, Sometimes when you get a higher degree, you could be overqualified for a job, but you don't have to tell that job, you know, that you have that degree. You could always say that you have one step lower than it, just so you're not overqualified for it. But, like, I just, the reason that school thing has just, like, been bothering me is because if I do that, I feel like when I do go to apply for jobs, in a way, it makes it look way much better because it's like, yeah, I made a mistake. But look like how far I've come now, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, and it's not because I'm doing it because to show, hey, I, I did this. It's because that's originally what I always wanted to do. Mm-hmm. It's just I made a dumb mistake as a, as a young person, you know. But it's just, yeah, well, you know, just a comment on that. Um, you know, these things are obviously complicated issues. But when they talk about prison re- reform and the, you know reforming the justice system, a lot of times it's about the sentences people have, which is very important. I think we, they should look at that very closely. But I also think another aspect of it that is very important is that how people get treated once they're out of jail or after they deal with their convictions. And very often, mm-hmm. it's very difficult for people to try to get themselves back into society for different ways. One is 
Sometimes they don't even get voting rights, and that can feel like they're really not part of the system. They're not a citizen, but then also applying for housing, applying for jobs. It can get in the way in a lot of different ways that actually makes it harder and unfortunately can reinforce uh, recidivism, making it more likely someone recommits because if you're not given a lot of opportunities to legitimately make money and get housing, it's more likely you'll go to some criminal ways or other ways of getting that. I think that's unfortunate. So uh, I talked about punishment earlier in today's show, and I think sometimes we think that the harder we punish someone, the better it is or it's good. But I think there's negative consequences that the people who are getting punished and the rest of society pay that aren't actually helpful. So I think it's unfortunate that you feel that because of a mistake you made years ago, it could affect you getting a job now, even if you feel like you've changed and you've shown that that's not you and all that. But that, unfortunately, is part of your reality at this time. Yeah, no, no, that's part of the reality of the time. And yeah. there's nothing I can do about exactly, it, you know. Yeah. It's, it's, I'm, just, I'm just pushing whatever I can and doing whatever I can to make the best of what I have. Right. Now, so, you, a lot of what you said was, you know, when you talked about going back to school, there's a lot in favor of that. What's pushing you or what's uh, making you think about not doing that and going for a job first? Well, it's just I've been doing this for almost six years now, you know, to graduate. And, like, I just, I can't really get, like, a crazy job because of my background. Mm -hmm. So for me to now be at this point, if I was able to even get any sort of better job than what I have right now, that would be better for me because financially I would be able to at least do a little bit more than I have right now, kind of live a little easier, and then as well try to do school then. But I know a couple of the people that I've went to school with or, like, I've talked to who are older than me or, like, my professors, they always say when you start working, then it's harder for you to go back to school mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. you're used to that, like, having that income, you know, or, like, making that money. Yeah. And you don't want to necessarily go back and be like, oh, I have to go to school now, or just mm -hmm. like, you know, some companies, they start moving you up, but... Yeah, I, I mean, that's a common experience people have, you know, it's a very common thing. Okay, I'll work for a few years and go back to school. Of course, people do it. But a lot of people, yeah, when they're, once they start making money, once they're in a company, it's a lot harder than to go back to not making money and going to school and changing course in that way can be tough. So I think generally speaking, of course, every case is unique. Using that momentum you have of already being a student and going forward is good, although you're saying you're a little bit burnt out from being a student. I can understand that. Um, but I yeah, can see how the, it's the easier. Burn, the, the, burn, the burnt out part is like, all right, you know, I don't yeah. mind just starting back up and going. It's like, it's just, you, my main question, I guess, is I really do want to go back to school. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I wouldn't mind getting a PhD and like, you know, Persian families and Persian <laughs> parents, you have to get the doctors, you know, and stuff like that. That's okay. a joke. Well, but, it, okay, I'm glad it, I know it is a joke and I, uh, it makes sense because it's so true. <laughs> and I'm sure they would be very happy if you got a PhD, but most important is if, to make sure you're doing it for you. But yeah, I get what yes. you're saying. I'm sure they yes. would be very happy no, if you did that. No, yeah. no, like I said, that was a joke. But it was, it's for me, I would love to do that, you know, and like I just, I couldn't imagine the doors that would open when I do get to that point because mm -hmm. currently right now I'm only 25 years old. This happened to me. What I explained to you happened to me when I was 18. Mm. So for me to get my PhD by the time I'm almost in my early 30s, I would have a PhD. And at that age with a PhD in like biomedical engineering or like chemical engineering or even there's like, 
your dad says like neuroscience is a really good major, mm-hmm. you know, which I've like I've looked into. But like biomedical engineering is like right up my alley yeah. from what I've been looking at. And like I even signed up for a seminar this month that I'm going to go to at UCR. That's for like um, majors like that. It's like specific tagged majors like mine, biology, chemistry, like all those STEM majors mm-hmm. that could go into the medical program to get a PhD. And it's like a newer program that's coming out. So I'm going to go to that and I'm going to start making my decision after that. But I don't know. Like I said, I just kind of wanted someone to talk yeah. to who would understand where I'm coming sure. from. Sure. I mean, I and I get it, the the decision of getting to work and make money and it sounds good. But it does seem like a lot of what I'm hearing from you is leaning towards going to school. Yeah. And I think that comes from me being being scared of getting denied from a lot of jobs. Well, yeah, I mean, there's that part, and I mean, I wouldn't want that to be the only deterrent that makes you not apply, but it does seem like you really value going further in your education. Of course, uh, it's going to only open doors, not close any doors. Um, So I think it seems like I'm just hearing you, that you're leaning towards going back to school pretty strongly and know that that you'll feel good about that. It does seem very unlikely you'll regret going back to school. Of course, it'll be challenging, so... Uh, don't get me wrong, I'm sure at times, like, gosh, I wish I was in school and just working and making money, but... Oh, yeah, man. <laughs> Especially this yeah. this road that I've been looking at, it's like, it's just, it's insane. Like, you, you pretty much need to, if you want to do biomedical engineering for a PhD, I'm not sure yet, 100%, but that's why I signed up for the seminar. But I'm pretty sure it's almost the same as getting into medicine. Uh-huh. Like, you need to pretty much go wow. through, like, the, sa- the same steps after you get your bachelor's to be able to apply to get into med school. And for like, for me as an engineer, that's not like a crazy task because I've already, I'm used to it, man. I'm used to not sleeping at night and like just pulling my hair out of my head, you know, trying to figure something out. And it's like awesome. I love that like feeling that, you know, it's just, I just wish I never had that burden that happened to me when I was mm. Yeah, I wish that that, that was... I wish that that didn't have to be part of your decision making calculus of like trying to, you know, incorporate that of getting a job and how it might be even more challenging. It's always like a yeah. it's always like a it's like a big weight around my neck and mm. it's just kinda of pulling me down. No matter how much I try to swim, you know, to reach the top of the water to yeah. like breathe, it's just like nope. We're gonna pull you right back down and it's like and I, it, it, it's all my fault. Well, I mean, totally I, I was going to actually ask you this. Like, I mean, I know there's the legal and logistical ways it holds you back, but do you feel like you haven't forgiven yourself for what happened? Oh, I've given forgiveness. Okay, forgiven good. Myself. Okay, good. Yeah, no, no. I, I forgave myself a, good, a, a good. while okay. ago, man, because I, I, knew, I knew deep inside my own potential. Mm-hmm. You know, after all, after all that stuff ended, I did so many crazy crazy like things where i made lots of money or like i just i was able to get to like achievements in my life after that you know that like i never imagined i would be able to when i was going to do that because all i heard continuously was your life is over you know Mm -hmm. like the fact that the fact that everybody around me told me that this happened to you you can't really do anything in america was just like for me, it was so hard to hear, and then yeah. I still was able to do all these things, and like just the fact that I graduated in such a hard degree at the top of my class, like already is like good enough for me to know, you know, no matter what anybody else does to myself, I know it's not true. Good, because yeah. 
Because no, I don't know too many people who've done that degree to that extent. And that's why I think my dad too, and my dad is one of the main people who keeps telling me to go back to school, is because I think if I do go to the judge in the future, which I might lose on making money for five, six years even, or I might have to still struggle and deal with this. But I know the day I walk into that courthouse and if that gets put away forever, that that moment will change my whole life again, mm-hmm. you know? Sure. And like, and, like, that's why I think school is the more, like you said, I'm leaning towards school yeah. and now I'm starting to see it myself, too, is it's a really big gamble. But, uh, but you're, you know, it, I mean, in a way it's a gamble because it's challenging, but you're betting on yourself and you're gam- betting on yourself in a way of... Uh, Either way, I'm going to win. Exactly. And that's what I was going to say is that also whatever decision you make, I'm sure you'll make good of it or make good with it. Uh, and also, of course, even if you make a decision today or even next year, it doesn't mean it's set in stone. You can you can that's change right. that also. So you shouldn't put that pressure on yourself that it's hey, like a decision. Hey, comes, I just... I just get my PhD and I'm a doctor and just go to Iran. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't. I doubt you'll regret. I doubt you'll regret having your PhD, and that's why I think I I feel it, and maybe you feel that pressure from your family, and that could also make you wonder, wait, am I making this decision or them? So no, no, actually, my family hasn't really put too much. Okay, on. good. Good. I I have to I have to say that my my parents are actually full supportive of like what I want to do. They just want the best for me. You of know? course. They, yeah. They they see everything that happened to me. And, like, as a parent, I couldn't even imagine what they went through right. watching all this happen, yeah. you know? So, so I mean, now they're just... Well, yeah. Well, I think, you know... they don't want me to do, like, something that's going to kind of mess up my... The road that I kind of built, you know? It might not be yeah. a perfect road, but it's, like, at least I wasn't on that dirt road. Like right, yeah. Before. And that's why, I mean, yeah. I, the more I'm hearing you talk, the more I get that sense that 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 seems to be a decision you want to make. And I can, I could see that why that would make sense. So, uh, you know, at the end, it's going to be your choice. I do got to wrap up and get some other callers, no, as no well. problem. but I appreciate you I'm calling good. and I wish you the best. Hey, and I think, like you said, you you'll so make much. good of it. I really it. appreciate you taking the time to talk to me, man. My pleasure. My pleasure. Best of luck to you. Take care. Thank you, brother. All right, bye-bye. Have a good day. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye. All right, let's go to another commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Studio number 310-441-0555. Let's go to another caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Uh, hi, is it me? Yes, it's you. Thanks for calling. Okay, great. Um, hi, Doctor. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. My pleasure. Um, I was calling because I wanted to talk to you about my two-year-old. <clears throat> Okay, We're, your your phone is your sound is kind of coming in a little bit choppy, so I don't know if okay. it's the the phone or the your reception, but is it better now? A little, yeah, that's better. Yeah. Okay, great. Because I was outside and it was windy. I okay. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so I'm calling starting my two year old daughter. Um, she's two years and two months, and from the get go, I listened to your dad TV and. Try to follow everything mm-hmm. <laughs> as much as we could, um, as much as our ability. So I, I was with her. I took off from work until she was um, two years old. She was about 19 months, and I had her enrolled at 19 months, and she started daycare. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so she's been going to daycare for about four and a half months um, with no issues. However, my concern was the daycare owner is my mom. <laughs> okay. So basically, <laughs> so basically, she's going to my mom's daycare. I mean, she engages with other kids. She plays with other kids. And there is no issues, uh, but my concern was if there's going to be any long-term issues uh, for my daughter. Because at the end of the day, um, she's being taken care of by her grandma. So yeah. she's getting spoiled, she's getting received, <laughs> like, I guess, like, whatever she wants. So I want to see if there's going to be um, any long-term issues that I need to be concerned about because... I mean, money-wise, it's obviously good for our pocket, but I don't want to cause any damage um, to her, so I wanted to see your opinion. Well, the long-term effect I think you're already dealing with is that you worry about things, because I can feel your anxiety and how you're telling me about what's going on, because it seems like an okay situation. My actually first thought was how your mom handles having your daughter there and the other kids and trying to... Uh, be fair or not be biased towards your daughter. How many other kids are in the daycare? Um, it's a small daycare, so like like less than um, the maximum is like ten, but usually there's eight other kids. Okay. Um, and there's the helper, so she has another teacher, and then her. But I know that she gets obviously she gets a special attention compared yeah. to other kids. I'm sure, and that's hard. I mean, some of that's going to be natural. The only uh, another concern I could have is that. You know, it could be odd for her, especially I'm glad it's not you, like as the mom. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if she's used to having you as the mom and having all of you and then she sees you playing with 10 other kids and, you know, that that might not feel very good. So, right. you know, that's something I would be just kind of aware of is seeing if that's having an effect. Does she get jealous uh, if your mom is playing with the other kids? She or giving them attention? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Yeah. That would be my yeah. biggest concern because it's like a feeling of, Wait, what's going on here? You know, because her doesn't make uh-huh. sense of, okay, well, these, you know, nine kids, their parents are paying, so grandma's got to, you know, treat me differently. To her, it just doesn't make sense. Like, she's sharing her all of a sudden or not getting as much attention. So that would uh-huh. be the thing that would just concern me of seeing how that affects her if it seems like she gets really upset about it. Um, so I don't know. What have you noticed in that regard? Um, so my mom has told me she does get jealous, like, Especially, like, if my mom is trying to read to all of the kids, she starts kind of screaming and want all the attention for herself, like telling yeah. my mom not to read books for everybody. Or if my mom has to hold a younger baby, she'll go and sometimes she'll try to pull on their leg yeah. or explain to my mom and things like that. Yeah, so, I mean, that's that would be the thing I would consider um, and now, actually, that we're talking about it more, I could see it being more of an issue. Not The way you said it, I think it sounded very dramatic of long-term damage and things. <laughs> so I think that's why I reacted the way I did. But when you talk about it more, I can see your concern, and I would have that concern, too. Especially, I wouldn't want it if it was uh, you uh, or, let's say, her dad, because that would be a very big blow. I mean, it's hard enough when a child has a sibling come along, let alone eight or nine of them every day that randomly show up. So uh, I I would see if you feel that it's becoming too much. Also for your mom, you know, it's uh, to be honest to the other kids, if she can't really be there for them because your daughter is going to pull too much or if she's trying to hold a baby who really needs her and your daughter's not going to be able to handle that, that could be an issue of how much she can really be there for all the kids, uh, which is Uh what she needs to be able to do. 
so I don't see this as some huge, you know, this is going to lead to some definite long-term damage, but I can see your concern of how it is one different from a daycare experience, really what we're looking at, but also there is these issues where I don't want from your daughter's side for her to have this feeling of, oh, why doesn't grandma want to play with me? Or, uh, mm -hmm. you know, I have this competition in a way for her attention and her love, which yeah. could have some effects. And then also from your mom's side of uh, dealing with having her there when she probably wants more from her than, you know, mm -hmm. she, she's going to give to the other kids. Yeah. The reason I guess I was being a little bit dramatic because I, um, I tried to call your dad like a three weeks ago, uh -huh. and he just talked to me um, offline. He doesn't bring me on, on the radio station, but he was just telling me that absolutely not. That's <laughs> how kids get messed up, so that's why I was like, yeah. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, he that tends to be the way he'll say things. Um, but I do see, you know, like I said, as we talked more, the the concern you had and maybe right. he had, I could see how it makes sense. And it, it, I get that financially it's a lot cheaper to get right. essentially free daycare. Um, yeah. But it could have that effect that I think it could be making her feel like she's sharing or has to compete for the love, which doesn't feel good. Because again, to your daughter, she doesn't get this is working hours or this is a daycare and these people are paying. Yeah. And to her, it's just, okay, grandma wants to play with other kids more than she wants to play with me or, you know, I have to mm -hmm. fight for her love. So, okay. you know, if financially it's possible, you might want to look at other options. Of course, it'll be tough because she's, I'm sure, more comfortable being with your mom. Right. Um, but it's something to be aware of. Um, you know, apparently right. my father was much more concerned, um, and I'm sure that scared you a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then also I was curious, like, long-term-wise, because right now I know most of the time she gets her way at my mom's place. And then when she goes to an actual school or preschool, she, she notices that she doesn't get that special attention. Yeah. She doesn't get her way. How is that going to affect her in a few years? So well, mostly that was also... Yeah. I mean, you know, getting special attention, of course, from you and her dad and in general with yeah. her grandma, she should be getting that, in. you know, when you guys are with her as her, you right. know, her, her caregivers. But, I mean, that's part of what they experience when they go to daycare, preschool, and then school is... Mm -hmm everything doesn't always go your way and that's okay. They mm -hmm. can handle it. Now, if they're feeling neglected or really getting hurt, that's not good, but it's okay yeah. for her to see that she's okay. She has to share the time or she has to, mm -hmm. you know, doesn't always get to play the game she wants to play is not necessarily good. So actually that mm -hmm. could be, we could flip that around and see that as a bad thing. If she's, let's say went to daycare and every time they did what she wanted always, I wouldn't mm -hmm. say that's actually good for her development, you know? So if your mm -hmm. mom was favoring her too much in that way, it might actually mm -hmm. be bad for her rather than good for her. And usually as parents, we think, okay, my job, I talked about this on my show Monday, was is to prevent pain for my kids. So if my kid doesn't mm -hmm. like something, doesn't feel good, then yeah, let's give my kid what he or she wants. But really long-term, we need them to face small bumps and, you know, uncomfortable right. feelings to realize this is what life is about. You know, if you want to have friends, you can't always just play the game you want to play, right? You have to learn mm -hmm. that sometimes we play their game or sometimes I have to play a game I don't like very much. And mm -hmm. so um, I, I, maybe it'll be an adjustment for her. Of course, it'll be adjustment just changing. But, right. you know, we want to help her even in that process if that's something you see is challenging okay. for her. And just to see that from your own mindset as a parent, are you coming from that mindset that she should, you know, things shouldn't bother her or we should give her exactly what she wants every time, no matter what. When she's a yeah. baby, yes. But as she gets older, that's going to be, you know, less and less. Yeah. 
Sounds like you are, and like I said before, um, you know, sometimes we're we're so focused on being on the right track that we can get worried about every small thing, and so uh-huh. of course we take things seriously. We want to make sure we think about the decisions, and that's wonderful. But sometimes we put too much pressure on ourselves, and then even that will uh, spill over to our kids also. So be aware of that. Yeah. That being too trying to be, I was talking about perfectionism today, almost trying to be too perfect mm-hmm. as a parent can actually get in right. the way of doing good parenting. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Nice talking to you. Thank Have you a great so day. Much for your time. My pleasure. Take care. All right. Let's go to another commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. With the last caller, the topic of being a perfect parent came up, or I mentioned that. Um, and how that actually can get in the way of being a good parent. And so I mentioned before about some quotes about perfectionism and progress or other ones that say perfect is the, uh, I think it's perfect is the enemy of good, something like that. Um, and in this case, it actually fits nicely because I was talking about being a perfect parent, but really all you need to be is a good enough parent. And that is a term that comes from uh, Donald Winnicott, good enough mother, meaning that a mom really applies to both parents, but doesn't need to be perfect. And actually that doesn't even benefit the kid. Um, Being good enough is what your child needs. And that's something that's important to keep in mind. Uh, Parents, of course, uh, take their role, or I hope they take that role very importantly, that it's the most important thing you will do in your life is being a parent and most important and also where you can have a big impact. So we should take it very seriously. You should study about child development, study about parenting techniques. Uh, If you have a husband or wife you're raising the kid with, talk about things together, develop the way you want to parent together. So we should put a lot of effort into it because it is very important. Um, I know sometimes people will talk about having mandated classes for parents before they can become a parent. I think that's a good idea. I think at times it becomes risky though because when you say things like that, having a mandated class, it feels like you're saying you're going to dictate who can and cannot have children, which has bad history when it comes to things like eugenics. Um, but this is a little bit different. Sometimes people will say we'll give a tax break to someone or parents who, who takes a class like this. I think that that's a good idea. But I do think it's a good idea to, to have some type of minimum education that all parents have. But of course, individually, we should be striving to do much more than that minimum and become the best parents we can be. Um, And on top of educating ourselves and the different principles of parenting and child development, we also have to take a look at our own uh, childhood to understand ourselves better, to see what we went through as children, what our parents were like, what we experienced as a child, because we know that consciously or unconsciously we're going to uh, have those issues spill over into how we parent and onto our kids, and we want to minimize that as much as possible. So the more you understand yourself and the more you understand your own childhood, the the better you will be able to be in minimizing that impact that in some ways inevitably will happen. But coming back to this notion of perfect versus good enough, uh, sometimes parents, because they take it so seriously and because they have this mindset that I should never hurt my kid, I should never do something that hurts my kid, whether in what I do or what I don't do, 
or decisions I make for them, and they put so much pressure about damaging their child, hurting their child, not being a perfect parent, that really, one, it gives them so much anxiety and stress, but even it interferes with their parenting, even the relationship they have with their children. Um, so we have to accept, first and foremost, you're not going to be a perfect parent, just like I said at the top of the show about doing something perfectly and there's nothing you'll do perfectly, especially in the realm of parenting where you're going to constantly have to make so many decisions and deal with so much stress and sleep deprivation and so many different things. Of course, you're going to get it wrong sometimes or do things even you know are not right or you won't know that something you did wasn't good and later you learn information. Uh, people will say, oh, I didn't know that this was bad parenting until I was much older or the kids were too old to actually benefit from it and they feel so guilty about what they did. So, of course, we're going to make mistakes. And um, when we look at child development, of course, when we have an infant, you do want to attend to its needs as quickly as you can. The baby's crying. You want to try to figure out why it's crying Really, that's the only way you can communicate or the main way it's going to communicate and take care of that. Does it need to be changed? Does the baby need feeding? Are they just uncomfortable and need to be held? What's going on? And sometimes they just cry, which is very difficult for parents to deal with. You do everything. You don't know what's wrong. You can't figure it out and the baby will, will keep crying. And that can be very, very stressful um, for parents to deal with. But that's just what it is. You try your best. And still, it seems like you can't make the baby happy in that moment. So when they're infants, we do want to attend to what they need. But as they get older, what we start to realize in a way related to something I mentioned with the previous caller, it's at times okay and even good for them to face some challenges or to not get everything they want met uh, right that moment that they want it. And... This doesn't necessarily mean you intentionally have to do things to make your kid not feel good um, or not meet their needs. You actually won't be perfect, and that's okay. So this goes back to you don't have to be perfect, and actually even trying to be perfect might not even be good for your child. Uh, being good enough is actually what you want and is good enough to sometimes make mistakes. Even this theme um, carries over into therapy. I think it was Kohut who would talk about these uh, misattunements that would be happening in therapy that actually would help the client or the patient to grow, that sometimes you wouldn't quite be there for them. But just like how a kid over time will start to learn to be there for themselves a little bit more, or you won't get it quite right, the therapist will sometimes be misattuned to their client, but the client will slowly grow from these misattunements or these ruptures and these repairs. So you have, um, you get it wrong and the, the client doesn't feel very good and you talk about it and you actually repair and make the relationship closer and make them feel better too, or they can feel better about themselves. And so sometimes uh, therapists thought, well, then we should make these mistakes on purpose. And Kohut basically said, no, you won't have to do them on purpose. You're going to do them anyway. Even by trying your best, you're going to get it wrong sometimes. And of course, that's very true. As a therapist, I try to be very attuned and empathic with my clients, but probably every session I'm going to get some things off or a little bit wrong. Uh, I don't have to try to get it wrong. It's going to happen. And so as a parent, you're sometimes not going to be there perfectly for your kid, and that's okay. Children are resilient and they grow. We don't need to intentionally hurt them. Let me make that point very clear or intentionally do something to bother them. But we know that we're going to sometimes get it wrong, but we have to make sure we don't beat ourselves up 
to think that that's not okay. And unfortunately, what I've seen happen with some parents that have this perfectionistic mindset, this feeling I should be a perfect parent, I should never hurt my my child, I should never make them feel bad, I'm never going to cause them any pain, I'm never going to do anything wrong. That's similar to what I was saying before about perfectionism leading to avoidance. They can't handle doing something or feeling the pain of their child if they think somehow it related to them. And so because of that, they might deny it or they might deny their child their own feelings. So let's say they do something and their kid is sad. If I can't handle ever hurting my child, my reaction might be, oh, come on, you're not sad about that. Come on, you're okay. It didn't bother you, right? Because I can't handle thinking, what if I hurt my child? So actually, rather than empathizing and validating my child's feelings because I can't handle the guilt I would feel of thinking I might have done something my child didn't like, I'm going to actually invalidate and dismiss my child's feelings, which actually is going to hurt my child much more than acknowledging what's actually going on. By telling my child, no, I didn't hurt you, or mommy or daddy can't handle thinking they hurt you, you're actually giving your child a very strong message that if someone bothers you, someone hurts you and you don't like it, you have to just hold it in and deal with it yourself. Because if you tell them they won't like it, or if you tell them, they're going to tell you that you're wrong, that you actually are okay. So parents will be in denial of how their children have been hurt. I've even seen it in therapy where people will talk and they'll say, I never did anything that hurt you. Think of one thing I did that hurt you. Or can you ever remember an example of something I did to, that bothered you? Because they can't even accept that they hurt them in some way. So they're almost telling them, come on, let's see what you got. But really, if you are being a caring parent that can recognize how challenging it is to be a parent and how relationships are that inevitably we do hurt one another, you would think, of course, I've done things that have hurt my child. Of course, I could have done better in some things that I did. Of course, I neglected some things that I, I could have done better that helped them. And, and, and many of the things I did, I probably didn't realize hurt my child. But if we come from a stance of there's no way I hurt you, that shows that it's not that I actually want to know that I hurt you, but actually that I can't accept it. And people do this in romantic relationships too, just not wanting to tolerate or accept that maybe they've done something to hurt the other person. So if the person is hurt, it must be their own fault. They're sensitive or they're imagining things or remembering it wrong um, or they have the problem, not me. It's not something that I did, it's you. And so you do this to your child too. If you can't tolerate that you've made any mistakes, then you're going to blame them for their hurt. Oh, if, oh, yeah, they're just, she's just sensitive about that. I don't know what to do. It's, it's not good to be sensitive. She shouldn't be so sensitive about that because I can't tolerate, okay, maybe I said something my child didn't like, or maybe I pushed my child a little bit too hard and they didn't like that. We'll find a way to figure out why we were right. So we have to accept that I'm not going to be a perfect parent. And thankfully, that's okay. You can't be perfect. You won't be perfect. And we know that children develop well, even when you are not perfect. All they need you to be is good enough. And so I really do love that uh, concept from Winnicott of good enough mothering, because it, it takes the pressure off to realize I don't have to be perfect. I can't be perfect. And that actually in not being perfect, it might even help my child grow. The fact that sometimes I'll get it wrong actually can help them start to build their internal resilience, their own ability to take care of themselves, to emotionally respond to the situation, to soothe themselves, that that'll be okay for them and actually will help them grow. 
just like when they experience discomforts in life, if they're small enough that they can handle them, they can grow. This is the same thing in the relationship they have with you. Um, so I was talking about therapy where there's the repairs and the ruptures. You're going to have that in every relationship. Something happens, your child doesn't like it, and they can tell you, oh, I didn't like this mom, I didn't like this dad. And then you could talk about it and actually make your relationship better and also allow them to feel better. I can stick up for myself. If things don't go well, I can actually say something about it and make it better. And it doesn't mean that I'm in a hopelessly bad situation. It's actually a good thing. So we have to take that pressure off of ourselves. You're not going to be perfect. And that's okay. And actually, I think this desire to be a perfect parent or the pressure we put on ourselves to be the perfect parent contributes to what sometimes is called mommy wars or it could be obviously daddies too but these either online or in-person types of battles and judgments that people pass on one another based on how they're parenting because we have to believe that what i'm doing must be right if i'm uh, breastfeeding my child till 12 months it has to be the perfect thing and if someone stopped earlier or did it later they're being bad parents i have to judge you because i can't deal with this anxiety i have about what about if what i did was right or wrong i can't deal with that uncertainty so i project that onto you and telling you you were so wrong oh you're doing that oh you're really damaging your child's self-esteem or you're really not letting them develop i do this because that's the best way to help your kid uh I mentioned I the book Crib Sheet, or I talked about that book a few weeks ago. I really liked it because it mentioned uh, or approached things in a very non-judgmental way about a lot of parenting decisions that we make so black and white or people talk about it in a way that this is the only way to do it. You realize it's not the case, that people um, have to look at what's going on with their family, with their baby, and make a decision that makes sense for them. And we should really try to put away that judgment, realizing to me very clearly it's an expression of our own anxiety about doing it right or feeling good about what we're doing. And we're throwing that out into the world and say, you know what, I'm doing what I think is best for me and my family. And that's all I can do. And other people might do something differently, but it doesn't mean either I'm a good parent and they're the bad parent or I'm the bad parent and they're the good one. It just means there's different ways and every child is not going to be needed to treat be treated the same and that's okay we can accept that i'm not going to be perfect no one's going to be perfect we're all struggling through this and actually it'd be nicer if we support one another in that struggle of being a parent and how hard it is rather than judging one another tearing each other down and saying you're doing it wrong i'm doing it right i'm good you're bad we don't know a lot of times we're trying our best and let's just try to Realize that even if someone does differently from us, doesn't mean one of us has to be bad. It could just be different. All right, let's go into our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I wanted to conclude the show today talking with a few comments about the State of the Union address last night, not about the politics of it. And to be honest, I didn't get to see the whole thing, just watched some highlights of it and some news coverage and different snippets about it. Um, but I know the speech itself obviously gets a lot of attention, but there was things that happened around the speech. First, that Donald Trump, uh, President Trump, did not shake hands with the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, and then at the end of the speech that she tore up his speech um, in front of the camera in a way of showing that she thought it was bad. I think she said it was a manifesto of mistruths. And then, of course, there's what happens there and then what you see on the news and then social media. Um, but what 
I'm always struck by, and it's something I try to remember for myself, is the biases that people will start to show when they talk about people from their side or the other side. And so if someone from your side does something, somehow it's very much okay. Uh, but if someone from the other side does something, you are uh, you know feel like they should be ashamed of themselves and it's such a bad thing, even if sometimes it's, it's the same thing. And so uh, this is unfortunately one of the consequences of having partisan politics the way it is here in the United States and you see it in other um, countries as well. But right now it's so strong where it's you're either on one side and you love everyone on that, that side and all the good on this side and then you hate the other side or vice versa and there's no in between and there's no you know i could be a republican but i see some bad in some of the things we do and the people do and i'm a democrat and same i could see some good and some bad but i I can see it in a balanced way i think unfortunately we're losing more and more of our of our objectivity because we're becoming so much in this kind of tribal mindset of fighting against the other side and so what do i think of what happened i didn't think either one of those actions were good um i guess i actually didn't see the part i think the speaker of the house didn't introduce the president in the formal or as formal of way with respect uh, so some people say she quote unquote started it and it's funny when you see arguments like this or people start talking about these things because you realize it, it sounds like a, a schoolyard issue and so you think it's kind of childish and it is to think okay who started it um well, if you didn't introduce me in the right way, then I'm not going to shake your hand. Well, if you don't shake my hand, then I'm going to tear up your speech. Uh, it hopefully is not that those are the motivations, but this is what starts to happen. But to me, the defenses that people make or the ways we talk about people is something we have to be aware of. And ask yourself, as uncomfortable as it is, if my side, my team did that, um, what would I think? Would I think that it was bad? Would I say these same things? Has someone from my side done something like that? And did I respond in this way? Or does it really seem that uh, my biases are showing themselves? And of course, when we look at the media, there's the biases that people have. But on top of that, sometimes there's an agenda. So if you're trying to make sure your team wins, so to speak, you're trying to obviously make your group look better and better and the other side look worse and worse. So people will spin and exaggerate and do all sorts of things because they have an agenda to make sure they're winning and the other team is losing. So they do that. But even ourselves, naturally, we do that. And I use the word teams. And even as a big sports fan, we know that we're very biased about our teams. If your player does something kind of dirty, you're like, oh, well, he's just trying to win or she's just trying to win the game. Uh, but if the other team does it, like, oh, look at them. They're just bad people that do dirty things and are just going to do anything to win. And that's why they don't even deserve to win. Uh, or if your player does something outside of the the field that's bad you maybe will be more forgiving of what they've done compared to others um i'm a big messy fan and yesterday i think he made some comments about some of the hierarchy at barcelona and i was you know was trying to think about it in an objective way that maybe i didn't like what he said if someone else had said it although i don't know the whole story yet but trying to be aware that if another player said it i might have judged it differently So we have to be or try to be honest with ourselves and realize we're all biased. If someone tells me I have no bias, I'm completely objective about something, all that tells me is that they're not very aware of themselves because we all have different biases. No matter what it is, we're not even aware of some of them. And so we have to have some of that humility about ourselves and knowing, okay, 
this is what I'm thinking, this is what I'm feeling, but let, let me think about it. So if you're a Republican or if you're a Democrat, think about that when you're evaluating something. And we'd like to think we are logical and rational and we don't get affected by these things, but we all do. Let's just accept it. We're human beings. We get affected by these things. If I tell you here's an article written by a Republican, if you're a Republican, you're going to read it very differently than if you're a Democrat and vice versa. And so if you're a Republican, you're going to look at how great it is. And this is a great article. Look how strong it is. If you're a Democrat, you're quickly going to poke holes in and be like, oh, look, this doesn't make sense. These arguments are stupid. This person's a bad person. You, you'll Whatever it is, but somehow you look at it very, very differently. And so recognizing those biases doesn't make you weak. It makes you stronger because you're more aware of what's going on. Just like if you're, uh, since I've been using some sports analogies, an athlete knowing your body is injured in different ways, you can be mindful of what you do based on those injuries. Not knowing them actually means you might get hurt or perform even worse because you'll do something you can't do or you'll hurt yourself even worse. But being aware of those um, weaknesses will actually help you. So if you have a bias, own it, accept it. Of course, if you're a Republican, you're going to be biased towards Republicans and conservative values. And if you're a Democrat, same thing. And it actually relates in some ways uh, to what I was talking about in the previous segment with parenting, where when it comes to a lot of these social issues, uh, we think we know the truth, but really we have some anxiety about it. Is it really right? Is it totally the truth? And because of that, and because of our uncertainty, we will project that out onto other people. As I said last time with the parents, the same thing. Well, I'm not really sure. So I have to be, I'm so right. And they are so wrong. Not only are they wrong, they're immoral to think what they think or crazy, or irrational. And you see all these words getting hurled from both sides to each other about who they are and how they're being because we have to try to defend our side even more because we're a little bit unsure. And um, when it comes to the way we look at political issues, we want to think that it's a pure, rational decision. We've weighed all the evidence and we came to some conclusion to support this or be against that. But really, we know that our emotions are playing a much bigger part than just our rational mind. So you hear about abortion and you have an emotional reaction to it that tells you either you're pro-choice or pro-life or whatever it is that you think about it. Now, it's not just based on the thought. It's based on your feeling about that. Okay, guns, what do you think about it. Yes, you'll feel something. And if you are pro-guns and you read an article on guns, you're hoping that the evidence is in your favor. And if you're anti-guns, you're hoping it's against uh, guns or what in your favor of what you believe should be done. Not because you're looking for the truth, but you're looking to be right. And it can be tough to acknowledge that. It can be tough to accept that. I can feel that too sometimes. I know I have my biases about certain social issues. Uh, for example, when it comes to helping the homeless, I always want more to be done. I always think more should be done. And I do feel strongly about that. And I, I maybe emphasis on the word feel. I do think it's the right thing too when I think about it more deeply. But I know I'm biased when it comes to this. So if you tell me here's a study looking at when they gave more resources to families, I'll be honest, before I even read the results, I'm hoping that it helped or it, the, the authors and the researchers concluded that it was a good thing because I want to help. I want there to be more help. I don't want them to be suffering or to be struggling. So I'm already hoping for a certain result, or even if I had a choice, I might want to see the results in a certain way to favor what I already believe in. That's, that's really, um, 
how we are as human beings and something we have to accept. We are emotional and rational beings together, but we definitely have a big emotional side that is much more involved in how we think and what we do than we oftentimes want to accept. We want to think that we're just these cold, rational people who think about things, but we care a lot about things. We have feelings and it's going to affect what you think, what you feel, um, and your political ideologies and all of that get affected by these things. So when you look at the actions of politicians, be aware that, of course, if they're on your team or not on your team, you're going to view those same actions very differently. And try to be more objective. We're not going to be perfectly objective, but we can try to challenge ourselves. It doesn't feel good. It feels really nice to be like, yeah, we're the good ones. They're the bad ones. Look what they did. Oh, my gosh, you heard another one did this. This one did that. Our people are so good. Then you, a story comes out about corruption in your own party, and all of a sudden you don't know how to accept it, or you downplay it. Or maybe you say, oh, look, everyone does it. This is just part of the game. You have to play dirty to win. You'll find a way to make it okay. Um, and this also goes back to our mindsets of trying to make things very black and white. We like to split things that it's easier to think of people as good guys and bad guys rather than, you know what, everyone's complex. The heroes we have that we value, they've done some things that maybe weren't good too, but they can still be someone that we value the things that they did. But if we want to say that they were pure good or someone else is pure evil, you're probably going to be wrong because really no one is that but it's easier to make people that way. So the ones on our team are good, the ones on the other team are bad. So I'm sure if you're um, a Republican, you'll look at what Nancy Pelosi did and be like, I can't believe it, and it was disrespectful and disgraceful to America. And then people who are Democrats think that him not shaking her hand was really bad and that's disrespectful and he shouldn't do that, and, and, and that was not okay. So be aware of how your biases are going to affect you. Try to be humble with yourself and have that humility that I am a biased person because we all are. If someone tells me they're not biased, that means they just don't know their own biases, not that they actually are unbiased. Um, and it even relates to things like in science, as I was saying before, because I have the book right in front of me about gender and our brains, that even though we might think um, we're looking at just data, but we are still making stories that make sense to us. So you might look at the same information and come to very different results based on what you want to believe, what you feel is better, and what you already think to be true. We can't unsee or unthink what we already know. And being aware of the biases are very important. So we're getting closer to a big election here in the United States. And unfortunately, what that usually means is that the, uh, the relationship between the two parties or people from opposite sides is going to get even uglier. Uh, where people will think even worse of the other side. It, it's like a big game is coming up, so of course you want the other team to be bad and not good and immoral and crazy and all those bad things. But I think that's one of the unfortunate things that we're seeing in politics, especially in America, is we are getting more divided. They've always been divided, but even more so I think that we're becoming uh, unable to talk to one another about having different opinions. And usually... If you talk to someone, you'll see that there might be some more logic or more understanding to why they think differently from you, and that can be okay. It doesn't mean they're bad people, they're crazy people. They're just different. Different doesn't always have to be bad. And realize your own insecurity about not knowing if what you actually believe is 100% right, and that's going to make you want to attack the other side. Sometimes you might be more clear about it. 
But especially if you're not, it might actually make you more biased in how you respond because that uncertainty, what if I'm wrong in what I believe in? What if what I think isn't actually some kind of truth with a capital T? That can be very hard to accept. So we'd rather just totally paint the opposition as bad and for us to be the perfectly good ones. But none of us are good. And the theme in the show, you're not going to be perfect. You don't need to be perfect. No one is. We're going to be humans who make mistakes, who sometimes believe things that are wrong. You can change your mind. That's okay, too. All right, we're at the end of today's show. Again, the book of the week is Gender and Our Brains, How New Neuroscience Explodes the Myths of the Male and Female Minds by Gina Rapone. Thank you, Ghazada, here in the studio. Thank you to the callers and all the listeners out there. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. Have a wonderful day.